Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. Welcome back to Anecdotal Anatomy. Today, this is our 35th episode. I can't believe 35 episodes. And, you know, in the beginning, we had this idea, well, we'll do 10 episodes per season. You know, maybe five will be just the two of us, and then we'll get five guests in. And we kind of worked with that model in different ways in seasons one and two. By the time we got to season three, and and this really speaks to showing up and just doing it and surrendering to the process. And we realized that that was just a little too rigid for what we do in these casual conversations. And that maybe not to assign a number for the season, but to see as we plan how it how it unfolds. And this season, it was a much more organic process. Granted, we didn't have any guests, and I, I personally miss that. I know that our guests add so much to the conversations, and we haven't abandoned that. But what we discovered is that when we surrendered to our mission, which is to explore the stories our bodies hold and tell, and to, you know, do in, in that exploration, discover those places where the individual and the collective meet and how we're not separate. So those things always go hand in hand in everything we do. And this season, you know, we, we declared ourselves architects with absolutely no math background for my, we developed this, this neighborhood, this holistic neighborhood. And, you know, we, Teresa will probably talk a little bit more about the fascia and the things that, you know, were part of the the science of the neighborhood. And then we got to a point where we realized these conversations contained in this model are great. And there's so much potential to take the conversations into the world. And Teresa and I are both teachers. We're educators. These That matters to us. It, it nourishes us. And so it seemed natural to then take these conversations into the world and apply the things that we are architecting. Is that a word? Architecting that we're building, that we're creating. And to to see it in real life, and summer is short, and we didn't have a lot of runway to to gather momentum and speed, but we did decide that we were going to do a four-week adult camp. If you're new to the podcast, then yes, we just finished our, our fourth week. But as we sort of, you know, button up this season three and look back on the 15 episodes that that arose out of this this topic of of creating this, building this holistic neighborhood. And the neighborhood's not done yet. We're still, I have a feeling that 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 architecture will be a through line throughout all of our seasons as we continue to work for holistic views, holistic practices, ways to kind of come together in community and rise to our highest optimal wellness. 
Yeah, it has to be because our mission is connecting the individual to the collective. And that's a neighborhood. That's a, that's a neighborhood. That's a town, a city, a state, the, you know, the universe. We, the multiverse. The multiverse <laughs> that we have yet to uncover <laughs> under our fingernails and in the dust motes of the world. I'm going to go into right into camp. I have to go right into yeah, camp. And that's where we're going anyway. Yes. So go. I'm, I'm going to go right into camp. When we're talking about neighborhood, getting together, being in community is such mm. I'm going to use the word touch. It's so touching. And I have to because we came together with uh, 11, 12, 13. There were different amounts of people each week at camp. And the coming together, the building of community, the getting to know each other. Some of the people who uh, attended camp, I already knew. And it was so fabulous to see them and have their energy coming in and the familiarity of being with long-standing friends. And then we had people I had never met before who brought their energy and excitement and enthusiasm into the group. And, you know, we talked, somebody asked us, how many people do you want to come to camp? And the answer was the people who were drawn to it. Right, That there isn't a number, that there's power in the group of people that get together. There's power in those that are called to be in community. And are we moving right into play? Well, we, yes, because we did touch on each week, you know, the different themes of the days. And this last Sunday was P for camp. And it was yay play, playful practices. How do we, you know, we do the things we enjoy. And so why not make those things that are good for us and that, you know, will help us achieve that optimal wellness, but I'll make them fun. You know, and at the end, we did so many fun things. Oh my gosh, we did some laughter yoga. We did, we took pictures of these big, long wingspan birds, these eagles and different kinds of, you know, birds of prey and other birds. We, we were silly. We did a lot of really fun things. And at the end, we did a little meditation on the evolution of the grape. You know, the grape is a smooth, juicy, lovely piece of fruit that when dried turns into a raisin and with different care turns into wine. So we had grapes, raisins, and wine, and we did meditations on each and gave toasts. And one of the toasts or one of the stories was, you know, sort of, well, go back to your childhood and what about your childhood, you know, would you, is a memory or a story that you hold today that, you know, you would like to continue practicing or that reminds you of youthfulness as we practice this. And I had a really unexpected reaction to that because our, when we, when people say, oh, what I wouldn't give to be, you know, a teenager again or 10 again, or like, oh, I'm so glad I'm past all that. And life just gets better and better and better. And I, I say that as a personal thing, and I hope that that's true for, for many of you out there. And so even though I was outgoing as a kid, I loved being a kid. I mean, I had, you know, siblings who were, you know, there. I had friends. I was in school. I did all the stuff. I went to camp. I, I did stuff. I was outgoing. But when I think about the youthful experience, I just love so much more where I am now. I feel like when I look back, I had a certain self-consciousness. I didn't have the same confidence, even though I was outgoing. I didn't have the same feeling of surrender to the moment that I have now. And I, I would joke, you know, I went to camp for many, many years, and then I became a camp counselor. 
I had so much more fun at camp as a counselor than I ever did as a camper. And I loved being a camper. So I just feel like if we can remember to practice what Teresa calls practicing youthfulness, then we don't have to pine or think about going back anywhere. We can move forward into it with a different sense of freedom and liberty than we ever could as kids. I say we, but I mean I, and I hope that there's a we in there because I'm not separate from you. Not going back to the collective. Right. I have heard so many people say, I wish I knew then what I know now, right? I wish I knew that now what I knew then. And that's kind of the foundation of my practices of youthfulness, right? Because how about if we flip it? And instead of saying, I wish I knew now what I, I wish I knew, I wish I knew then what I know now is to say, I wish with what I know now, I can play the way I did then or approach things with a freshness and a youthfulness that is born of wisdom and experience. And so some of my favorite parts of camp this week while we were doing play, well, I'm going to say my absolute favorite was hula hoop. (laughs) And I honestly YouTubed it before we got there so I could refresh my (laughs) And we had an expert hula hooper who showed up. I know. In tutorial. Yes. I went in and found a YouTube video which would help me to be able to communicate the instruction. So I get in there and I'm doing that. But what I realized while I was practicing was from a body work standpoint, the movements that you make to keep that hula hoop going round and round have to do with inertia. It has to do with subtle energy that you can tap into that the movement of the hula hoop is organic. And it's not really so much our job to move it, but it is to feel it, to connect with it, and to get united with that energy. So the movements are much, much smaller and refined than what I, we, I, I'll say I and other people have seen hula hoop where we have like big expansive movements. It's fine motor skills, these tiny circles with the pelvis that ask us to move with grace and uh, fluidity, to move simply and to just tap in to something that already exists. And that's much like what we do in body work when we're working with fascia, is tapping into the energy and the sensation that we feel when we touch the body, tapping in and noticing these simple and subtle movements that happen when we experience touch. And so the hula hoop, I think was fun because we all got out there and we shook and we played and we tried and we laughed. We laughed, oh my, I sucked at it. Oh my God, that would be a lifelong practice for me to find that because there is a sense, you know, like just even thinking of the chakras, it's, you know, Svadhisthana, which is the sacral chakra, which is water, it's fluidity, it's flow. And that's right at the, you know, the sacral center, like where your hips, you know, hinge. And so while it's more of, I think, an abdominal sort of central, what is the word? I can never say it. Centrifugal, centrifugal. Centrifugal. Oh, wait a minute. Centrifugal. Is this ubiquitous? 
ubiquitous. Not ubiquitous or ubiquitous. Ubiquitous or centrifugal. Like I can never say the fucking word. Is that where the accent goes? Centrifugal? Centrifugal? I don't know. And I know that when Jenny was showing it and she said, if you can just feel where it's landing on the body as you're moving. The way she, I was like, I, it was beyond my ability. I mean, I, that is, it's, it was not my energy. <laughs> I would love, I was drawn to it, but I'm very clumsy with it and I'm clumsy with a lot of things. So, but that's the grace piece that you talked about. Like if you can tap into that, then there's a sense of surrender also because you're not forcing or directing or over trying, you're just allowing. And so I think that's something of grace is in the allowing of it. But you said something that reminded me of my grandfather. I don't know how many of his quips were original. I've heard them from so many people. So I know that he would take the the things that he liked, the little little quips. And one of his was that youth is wasted on the young. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes to this whole idea that all the things that we kind of, the wisdom that we that we gather along the way you know, it sort of helps to inform this feeling of surrender, which we we ascribe to the youth, but it's not. It's not a part of that experience. At least for me, it wasn't. It was a much more self-conscious place to be than than today. People say, as you get older, you, you give less of a shit what people think. And I think that that is a cornerstone to that feeling of aliveness, of youthfulness, of just, um, you know, youth is wasted on the fucking young. Uh, without a doubt. <laughs> I don't think he's so, fucking. <laughs> so the Kula who wants to move where the body is moving. And so this leads into coming back to the koshas, to have this deep understanding of where the body moves with ease, where it might feel stuck, and to tap into the subtle movements. And one of the teachers I was studying said, it's going to move where you're moving the body. So if you are moving your knees to move your hips, that hula hoop is dropping and it is going down to where the knees are because that's what's moving. If you're doing the shoulder shimmy, <laughs> then, the, then the hula hoop is going to rise to the place in the body where it's moving. And this reminded me of a story. So this is why I love the hula hoops. I was once on a cruise. This is a great story. I was on a cruise and of course, you know, there's always the person, the cruise, <laughs> the cruise yaya person who wants to get everybody out and doing things. So there's a hula hoop contest. And this, whew, I was much more youthful back then. And I loved to hula hoop. I've lost some of the refinement because I noticed my hoop was dropping here. But anyway, I get up on the dance floor where they've got, you know, I don't know how many, I'm going to say 35 people with hula hoops all out there practicing. And some people, those hula hoops fell to the ground immediately and others, you know, it took a little time, but I had found the place that it was moving and I was able to just stay with the movement in my body to keep that hoop going round and round exactly where I wanted it to be. And all of a sudden I looked around and it's me and one other person that are still left hula hooping. And I'm thinking, this woman who was hula hooping with me is probably 30 years older than I was at the time. And being youthful and not really thinking about what my thoughts are, I I start telling myself, ah, this old woman, there's no way I am not going to win this contest. I am going to be the number one hula hooper. And 
So I got this smirk little smile on my face. That's my imagination because I couldn't see it. And I look her straight in the eye and she looks me straight in the eye and she gives me the eyes and she says to me, honey, I have been shaking my hips for longer than you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye. And boom, my hula hoop dropped. So why do I tell this story? Because it's not just the body that's involved in what we're doing. That we can't separate the body, the mind, the emotions. And the only reason that I have dropped my hula hoop was because she brought my brain into it. She talked to my brain. She talked to my emo emotions. She psyched me out and overrode this rhythm that my body had come up with and let my brain uh, be my main focus. She took me out of my body and into my head. I'm a distracted you. She was it, not only a skilled hula hooper, but a skilled, I won't say manipulator, but she knew how to read the room and you know distract you in the way that was going to make that circle drop. It went down to the ground. Yes. Oh, my God. And I was second, not first. <laughs> so, so the story is held in your body. I've heard you tell this story before, and you may even have told it on the podcast before. And it's it's a good story, though. It holds up, and it, it really exemplifies the different, the different themes that we've had, the different it, – it touches on so many – I mean, if we look at the different times and the different ways, it probably touches every one of the koshas. And so anytime we have an opportunity to explore that, that story is relevant. And it's a, it's a great story. Mm. Yes. So that's why I like the hula hoops. It reminds me of being young and someday I'll be number one. <laughs> <laughs> and hula hoops only make me feel silly because I have never been very good at it. I and my youngest daughter can hula hoop for, I don't until she chooses to stop. I mean, it's just. She makes it stop, but it's never been my thing. And I'm not very coordinated. Even I, I'm a fucking yoga teacher and I'm very clumsy off the mat. And sometimes I used to tell my class, I would say, okay, now you're in down dog. Imagine ladies, you're in a ball gown. Gentlemen, if you want to be in a ball gown, great. Otherwise you can choose a tux. Ladies, you can choose a tux, but put something elegant on. Maybe you have a strand of pearls around your neck and it's just dangling in down dog whatever it was, but I needed some imagery to bring me into elegance and grace because my body, I'm not an athlete. I was never a dancer or a gymnast. Um, the physical piece, the Anamaya Kosha piece of this is where I have to start because that's the thing that cascades and gets everything else in line. I can kind of begin there. And then the imagery, that's Manamaya Kosha. That's a mental thing that I get to do to not just tell a story to my body, but almost create a character in a story so that my body can express some quality that is not necessarily natural or organic to it. Not to say that it's manipulated or manufactured, but it can arise from the prompt of simply allowing myself to imagine that I'm in some fancy attire, you know, and and that speaks, we talked about this in an earlier podcast too, about this, and I think it was in season two, this assuming of character. So I think it was our friend, Fasha friend, your friend. Rochelle. Rochelle Clausen. Rochelle Clausen, who came in and talked about how, you know, in her mind class, inhabiting the shape of someone else's body gave her the feeling of being that person. And then we talked about being an actor. And then first you get into the story of the character. What is the backstory? How do you kind of create this character? And then you add on costume and makeup and all of the external things 
that lend themselves to, to a truthful expression of that character. So I've also said, I'm a really shitty, shitty liar. I don't like to lie. It's not, it's not natural for me. And so people say, but you are an actor. I said, yes, but the difference is an actor looks for the truth in the character to express that truth. And so even if you're playing a villain, you're playing the truth of that villain. And that doesn't always feel villainous to the person playing it. You know, it's so whatever the thing is that you're, you have to take on, if we know this and we want to learn or grow, if I wanted to be someone who is a hula hooper, I would, you know, maybe decide this character today, I'm a hula hooper and I'm going to get my hula hoop on and I'm going to just, I'm going to play with this centrifugal force, centrifugal force, whatever the fuck it is. And I'm going to play it. And so if I keep adding on these external things, then yeah, by the end of the day, I might fucking actually be a hula hooper. Yes. You might be, you know, as, as a yogi and a body worker, so many people talk about low back pain. They talk about hip pain, right? They talk about discomfort and stiffness. And this is such an amazing way to recover our youthfulness is to simply readopt some of the movements that we did as children. My, one of my teachers, Dr. Robert Schleip, I, I think I did mention this for sure before, said, if you want the body of a youngster, if you want a youthful body, do what you did when you were younger. So that's what kind of inspired us to watch TV and eat ding-dongs <laughs> with video games. <laughs> I just love ding-dongs. Now I want a ding-dong. <laughs> Fake cream and... It would be vegan, though. I'm sure there's nothing natural in a dick dog. Nothing no, nothing that. But we can, we can adopt some movement practices, and they don't have to be a practice. I suggested, I think, two weeks ago, just skip into the store when you get there. Like, what would it be? And what do you think other people are going to think when they see my long gray hair? <laughs> As I skip into the giant to pick up my groceries for today, everybody's going to be youthful because there's going to be some laughter that goes along with that movement. Or maybe people will just shake their head and then go, there's that crazy woman again. <laughs> They're going to be at least twofold or more. That crazy fucking lady again. Or man, I wish I could be that free. I wish I could be that free. And you can. And we can because in our neighborhood, that's the theme of the neighborhood is individuality having space for individuality the and and like you say individual yes and then how the collective comes together how we become unified as a collective whole in recognizing just like our body that every single thing within the universe that is our body if you think about our body it's the universe thank you siva think of all of the different systems the tiny little cells each of the different systems of the body. Uh, yes. And what they do, we're going there, sister. We're going there. And all the different things in the body and how they work. We have a universe within the boundary of our skin. But also, and also in our neighborhood, this universe, my universe of Teresa is connected to Sherry's universe of Sherry. Mm -hmm. And each of the people who were in our neighborhood. Those who wanted to come, who weren't able to come, and those who didn't even know we had a neighborhood, but yet 
they are still part of that collective whole. And when we really begin to notice that just like our internal landscape, where everything is connected and working together as universal tissues, universal components, uh, a wholeness of the architecture, that so is our outside environment. Uh, that reminds me, because you started dancing while I was talking, so maybe we should talk about that playfulness at some point in time also. We will, and I think we've already done that on this podcast. We've, we've done that song. So Do you know what episode? I don't remember which okay. episode, but I think it was either early this, this season or late last season. But one of the things that comes up in terms of a metaphor, that something that lives in me in terms of thinking about what it is, this individual and collective piece, because that can get a little daunting and it can also sound cliche. It can be this, you know, we have to kind of walk that line of, you know, the, the things that we explore are common themes. They're things, they're nothing unique about them, but except the fact that we're talking about them, that we, it's our voice and our perceptions and our experiences that we get to put into this. And this came up recently, but it also has, is an old question. Uh, many years ago, I had a friend and he asked me if I felt that music was a universal language. And I thought about it. The questions like that feel almost like gotcha questions. You know, like he was waiting for me to say something that he could then respond to in a, in a way. It was that kind of dynamic. So I wanted to really be thoughtful about my answer. And I said, yes and no. I said, the yes part is that every culture has music. Everyone, every generation has music. Every culture has music. And yet every generation looks back at the one before and it's not their music. They have new music. Cultures have different music. So I may not respond to some other cultural music in the same way. Over time, I can maybe appreciate it and find a way, you know, whatever that is. But the music is different. It's the individual expression of a culture. And yet it all falls under this vast umbrella of music. And, you know, my parents, they would take out their Reader's Digest 1950s cassette tapes in the car when we would be driving. And, oh, my God, I was just like, please put on Wi-Fi 92 for those of you who grew up in Philadelphia in the 70s, Byron and Tanaka. I don't know why I remember that, but I can't fucking remember, you know, what happened this morning. But there, I, I was into top 10 at the time. I'm really not into top 10 now. I like classic rock. I like old. I like everything from Barbara Streisand to Frank Zappa and everything in between and Broadway shows and class, all of it. But they're different. They're unique expressions that speak to different unique expressions within my whole terrain of my body. And we each have different likes and dislikes. So again, I don't want to, I don't want to go, I don't want to use the metaphor that I was going to use because it's so violent, but I don't want to, you know, beat the dead thing. <laughs> I just, I want to find different metaphors. I have a family who were expats for years and other family members were visiting or when they came back and they said something like they were talking to their Italian friends and they said something about killing two birds with one stone. And their friend said, you Americans are so violent. And they were like, well, what do you say? And he said, we feed two birds with one seed. I thought, oh, fuck, man, we are like our metaphors, beating dead horses, killing two birds with one stone. Like, Think about all the things we say and we say without thinking about them. And now I think about them and it's the thing I want to say, but then I can't say it because I don't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see so camp we had a great time the next thing uh well before or after hula hoops you mentioned it earlier was a lot of laughter and you know if you've ever participated in laughter yoga you'll know what i'm talking about and if you haven't i suggest finding a way to incorporate it maybe it's not going to be a formal class 
but laughter is really great, great, great for the soul. It, it releases endorphins. Our faces were stuck in smiles and our bellies could feel the muscles that of laughter. And I think that sometimes in the laughter yoga classes that I've taken, they begin slow. It takes a little bit of repetition of asking people to add in this forced laugh. Laugh. Would you introduce the practice to us as the body doesn't know the difference between whether you are laughing because you're deciding ha 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 ho 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 and you're just going to make the sounds of laughter or whether something is funny. And the more we practiced, the funnier it became. So we start with something that's a little prescribed, that is a, hey, do this, but then it takes on its own life. It takes on its own energy to laugh and connect with others. And boy, do I have some great videos of us laughing <laughs> and having a good time. <laughs> I stepped out of the circle for a brief second. And, you know, I have to say, I'm a little sad that I had, that I stepped out to take the video, but we wanted to capture some of these moments from camp. On the other hand, I was so excited that I stepped out of the circle and stepped into the role of an observer because I was just as happy and laughing just as much and had this huge smile on my face as the observer of um, a group of women having so much fun and so much closeness and interaction with each other in such a fun and lighthearted way. Uh, yes, it was amazing. And to watch everyone loosen up and be there. And, you know, we talk about we're going to move into the places in our bodies where we hold our stories. We talk all the time about our bodies holding and telling stories. And so as we segue into our next program and our next season, this is going to be our focus. And something that just came up for me as you were talking was, you know, and I hadn't written it down until now is that, you know, in season two, we talked about our archetypes, who we are as was it season one or season two, I don't even know, but our archetypes, and we are not just one, we have a list of, of things that how we show up in the world. And one of them that has always been one of mine has been that of the court jester or the clown. And so when I was asked originally to lead a laughter yoga class at the Prancing Peacock, I'm not trained in it. It's not something that I was at the, you know, the doctor who developed it in 1995. I, I wasn't at any of his trainings, but I went online. I watched some of his videos and I've been practicing for over 20 years yoga and, you know, teaching it. So I thought I, I can do this. And what I didn't expect to happen was that it tapped into that archetype inside of me, that it tapped into the inner clown that really lives to make people laugh. And I'm really not that funny, you know, naturally. I'm great working off of people. If someone's funnier than I am, I'm happy to, you know, be the straight guy or the funny guy in that situation. Like, I love that. But to, to inspire laughter, I think, is one of the greatest gifts in this world. And so the first time when I went in to do it, it was very manufactured. It was very, ha, ha, ho, ho, ho. But by the time the hour plus was done in that studio, our abdomens were hurting. It was such an organic laughter. And then doing this at camp the other day, it was only the second time I've ever led something like that, but it felt so natural to be able to do that. And one of our campers said she had done it before, but this time it was more fun. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to beat my own drum for a moment. And I think that the difference between a fun laughter yoga experience and one that feels more clinical is if your facilitator is a clown. I am a clown. And so I think that helps 
to raise the vibration of that laughter because I'm not afraid to look extremely silly. I'm not afraid to flail my arms and run on the, you know, do the things that need to be done. And so I think that that contributes. So that part of my story, that character, that archetype that lives inside me is released in that moment. And so I had so much fucking fun doing it. And I, I would love to continue and maybe grow into that piece a little bit more because what you said is so true. Your body doesn't know the difference. You know, I've been in meditation experiences where they say, if you imagine you're at the beach, your body doesn't know the difference. You might, you know, not smell the ocean air and you may not, but your body has that, your, your nervous system responds in the way as if you were at the beach. And so the same is true with the laughter. So ha ha, ho, ho, ho yourself to get a snack, ha ha, or ho, ho, ha, ha, ha yourself as you're getting your mail and then just see what happens. Laugh, laugh, laugh. And if you have nothing to laugh about, just Google knock-knock jokes. They're so silly. You absolutely have to laugh. I know because I have four grandkids and they've told me plenty of knock-knock jokes. And we all laughed, funny or not. There were still great sources of feeling youthful and laughing. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so before we move on to this, go ahead. Okay, I was going to say about camp because I think this is really important for those who have ideas Many of us have ideas that end up in mental or physical file cabinets that never get seen again. And whatever the obstacle that you think, if you don't have enough time or you don't think you have the resources, Teresa and I realized really close to summer, I think it was even June when we thought, let's do a camp. Camp happens in summer. We only have limited number of weeks because we both have lives that have other things on the calendar. And one, our first day of camp was the day after Teresa had a big family sisters weekend. And so we did have to kind of, you know, manipulate our schedules to make this work. But we had the idea. We didn't let the fact that, oh, my God, it's happening tomorrow stop us. And, you know, yes, there could have been 50 people if we had waited, you know, six months to, to develop and get all the little nitty gritty. But I will say this, the people who showed up were exactly the people who needed to show up. The experience was exactly what we could never have intended or anticipated and exactly what we wanted, even though we didn't know exactly what we wanted. Not knowing is not a reason not to do it. Not having enough time. All of the things that we say that we are in scarcity of are none of those are real. None of that is real. You can get it done. And not only was it not real for us, the not having time and not having the dedication to self was the motivator for many of the people who came, was that they recognized exactly what you said. They wanted more time to focus on themselves, a lightheartedness that came into their week of other obligations, a time to come to community and to focus on self, building relationships and building community and this collective community of friends who all just wanted to play. So not only did we start in a way that we're saying, are we ready? Can we do this? We're just going to jump right in, even though, you know, we don't have a lot of time and we didn't give ourselves a lot of front time. I found it fascinating that the people who were there we're there for the exact reasons that we talked about not worrying about it and just moving forward to just say summer's the time and let's let's do it. And we jumped in and altered our schedules, but so did our guests. They made time to care for self, to dedicate two hours, two hours, just two little hours in their week 
to themselves, to caring for self. And here's the practice. Here's my practice for you. And I'm going to throw, you have to, it requires a prop and the prop is bubbles. One of the other things we did was we blew bubbles. We had the little bubbles and we had the big bubbles. And watching 40, 50, 60, and 70-year-old women blow bubbles is the best tonic for the soul ever because that, it doesn't require a lot of effort. And I think it taps right into that youthful energy that we talk about in, a, in that aspirational way, not in the actual way of looking back and thinking, whatever the story is around that. Because when you are in the presence of bubbles, Glinda the Good Witch could arrive at any moment. You know, there's something about this dish soap that creates color that, you know, refracts the light in such a beautiful way. It's magical and it taps into that youthfulness. So without any extra effort other than just getting yourself bubbles, or I think you could even use your palm olive or your Dawn dishwashing soap and create, get a string or something. You can go Google it or TikTok it or find some hack to make your own bubbles. But in that act, there's a presence, there's a mindfulness, there's a connection for to yourself and this action that you're taking. And to see that you're creating this, this incredibly magical moment. I don't know. It just, and we have a bunch of pictures that we took of a mutual friend of ours who was at camp. And I just, I look at them. Now that's a daily practice of mine to look at the pictures of her blowing those bubbles because it just, it's wordless. And it's a, it's available to everybody. Like bubbles, what are they? 10 cents if you're going to go out and buy <laughs> at the dollar store. I mean, you can really get bubbles pretty inexpensive. It's accessible to everybody in regardless of their physical body. You know, maybe not everybody's going to get out and hula hoop for a variety of reasons. But what I took away was the ability to laugh at myself. As the hula hoop fell to the ground or we were laughing, there wasn't a frustration of like, oh gosh, I can't do this. And that's what we see with children. When they're playing, there's usually not a frustration. Just think of a baby learning to walk. First, they find that table and they're pulling themselves up. And when they get in, and they're on their own feet, they're standing there. They're so proud of themselves. Look at what I've accomplished. I can stand up. And then one hand at, at a time, they're like taking it off the table and seeing if they can take those first steps. But inevitably, they fall on their ass more <laughs> a whole bunch of times before they take that first step. But as they do, they usually chuckle. It's not a hard fall, but you know, it's not a frustration. It's a ha ha ha, look at that. And then let me pull myself back up on this table. <laughs> so I think in the playing, there's that other part of learning to manage frustration, to be okay with whatever's going on, to know that, you know, some things take practice and approaching it with a youthful mindset of, you know, I'm just learning how to do this thing. I'm learning this. And therefore, if my hula hoop drops 25 times in this practice to the ground, I should laugh every time it does and say, okay, what do I need to do next? Rather than find the frustration that sometimes accompanies learning something that's a little bit difficult. Just like mindfulness meditation. Every time the hula hoop drops, you label it thinking, come back to the breath, pick it up and start again. Every time, you know, your mind wanders from your breath, label your thought thinking, come back to the breath. There's so many opportunities in our days to do that instruction in a, in a, less, uh, in a less obvious way, in a less literal way. 
you know, picking up the hula hoop and starting again, taking your hands, falling down and getting back up, you know, making a recipe that doesn't work or, you know, starting again, you know, saying, all right, I'm labeling, I'm just coming back to one. And in acting, if you're doing a film and, you know, you're taking a lot of takes, take sometimes a hundred takes to get the shot back to one, back to one is the language. And so if we back to one, back to the breath, pick it up. I think that that's, that's such a valuable tool to have in our, in our utility belt and to intend playfulness. It doesn't have to be play. It doesn't have to be, you know, you could be doing something really serious, but you know, whatever your word, it could be playfulness, youthfulness, levity, you know, lightness, something to inform the head, to balance the heavy, to, to bring perspective, even within that moment, which, you know, mo when you're in the moment, it's harder to have perspective. Sometimes you need the distance. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, you need to step back from the situation, but it doesn't mean that we can't have in the back of our mind. And it, and I'm talking about me. I shouldn't even say we. That when I'm sitting working on a project that's supposed to be creative and fun, and I hit a I hit a wall, I hit a stumbling block. I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do next. The frustration is a block. It's a stopping point. And at that, I have learned over the years that when I hit that block. It is time to get up and go do something. I have to go for a walk with Siva, play, have a snack, maybe watch a funny video. Just walk away and take a moment for to give my brain and my creativity a chance to catch up to where we are. So this youthful practices, it's just, it's my new, it's my new focus is youthful practices. <laughs> the practice of youthfulness is one that I think we all need. And that's going to lead into. Oh, so, yeah. if you're going to if you're going to lead into it, then I will say it. Okay, because, go ahead and say it. Because immediately I was watching these silly reels about celebrities who've changed their look over time, and I love Madonna. I'm not going to disparage Madonna at all, but you know, it, the conversation moved into Botox, and you know, and facelifts, and all the different things. And listen, I've had my own things done in the past. I'm not judging plastic surgery at all. Do your thing, but the Botox thing specifically made me think of practicing youthfulness. Like, do we need the needle of, you know, what is it, botulism in our in our skin to like, to infuse those little wrinkles? Do we need to, you know, literally smooth out all of the imperfections? Or we could save some money and some pain and some time by practicing the youthfulness so that the more important part is feeling youthful. You know, because when we feel it, we express it. We may not look. Who wants to, I mean, I'm sorry, I, too much work makes you look like an alien, makes you look otherworldly, which if that's your point, that's great, you know, whatever. But if the point is to look and feel alive and youthful until we're done, then we have to go back to what you said. And I think that that's, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a clever name that uses Botox and in it, but I don't have it yet. Maybe by episode one of season four. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't use Botox. I used FUDEX. It just peeled everything right off. Go back to season one if you want to know more about that. But, you know, literally did a chemical peel. And boy, when I got done, my skin was like so much different. So I don't suggest that we're doing this for a cosmetic, cosmetic thing. But the end result, well, at least there was a positive that came at the end of that treatment. And that was a uh, a bit of youthfulness. Yeah. Uh, so that's right. a story that's a story that's some science so let's move on first before we move on thank we're, you oh, we're, look we're inadvertently voguing i just brought up madonna and we're voguing and vogue, vogue. 
Sit up on the dance floor. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so, anyway, we are so grateful, grateful for all the people who came to camp, all the inspiration of the, both the people that were there and those we had in mind that we were sending our vibes and intentions out to you to come along and be a part of our camp. I know that I had an amazing time. I really, really learned so much and I feel so nurtured by the expansion of our community, the expansion of our neighborhood and all of these amazing women that showed up that I got to spend. I, I was gifted two hours every week at the end of a hectic week of, you know, what our stuff, what all of our own stuff is to go and play and be in community. So I just wanted to put that out there as well. But thank you for those who showed up and those who've even thought about it. Or if you're just here listening with a smile on your face of thinking about playing, thank you too for embodying uh, all of the different things that we're talking about right now. Embody your youthfulness. So we started season one with the koshas because that, that's the basic. You know, we wanted to go through the layers of our being so that we could understand the totality of it. You know, that sometimes we confuse what's going on in our minds with what's going on in our energy and our body and our, the wisdom, all of the things that, that make up these layers. And then so season two naturally drifted into embodiment, like how all of these layers create this embodied experience of being alive in the world. Season three, we took all of that and took that information and created a neighborhood that brought in the coaches, brought in an embodiment, and then brought in the connections that we make. CAMP was an acronym. And so I know that we were teasing it out, we're doing whatever, but each letter had purpose. C, communication, community, connection. A was for alignment, awareness, and anecdotes. M was for mindfulness and meditation. And then P for playful practices. Yay, play. So all of these things, they're components of creating an optimally well community, a neighborhood. So we had an opportunity to move from in season three, when we were talking about it, to creating an in-person live experience that exemplified everything that brought us up to this moment. And so it felt to us you know, naturally, organically, like we said, that season three has kind of come to its natural conclusion. And so here we are, you know, tighten it up to move it on. And so season four, we also have another program that's in development that is part of this natural wave that we are riding. And so our next season, we're going to dive more into the science and stories, more of like we talk about the stories the body holds and the stories it tells. Well, where do we hold the stories? How do we hold the stories? When do we recognize that it's time to release a story or rewrite a story or, you know, when is it in the fibrous tissues of the actual anatomy and in what koshas do our stories land and how do they then reveal themselves? The other day I was on the massage table. I have someone I see uh, that I've resumed seeing since the pandemic. And the last time I was there, I had had a sensation, a story in my shoulder that had been a whisper for years. It was it hadn't escalated, so I hadn't really explored what the story was. And then after my last session, that was released. And I still get curious about that. But I told her this time I had no experience. My body was feeling really, really good. I had nothing to, to work on, so to speak. She started lingering at my left hip. And I got curious about that. I was like, oh, 
I was just in New York City. I walked almost 11,000 steps, according to my phone's pedometer. And when I walk a lot, especially in the city on the asphalt, I tend to take it more into my left hip. That becomes a place of vulnerability. That becomes a place where it's not in pain, but I definitely feel it at the end of the day. And so when she started lingering there, it was after a few moments where I realized, oh, I was just in the city and I did have that experience. I'm not feeling it now, but there must be some epilogue to the story that is remaining there. And so I told her that afterwards and she was like, oh yeah, I did linger there. I definitely sensed there was a space to, you know, whatever our conversation was, but I thought there's a story in that left hip, you know, the, and we're going to get into all of this because we were talking about the ways that we we buy into and I, the mental piece of our koshas that, you know, in our chakra system, we have the rainbow colors it's kind of fabricated. We made that up, the rainbow colors. But that said, I believe it. When I want to feel grounded, I'm wearing red shoes and red underwear. I mean, that's what's happening when I, that's the story of the koshas. So, you know, here I am, I'm like going off on all the things that we're going to be talking about, but the power of our minds, the power of each of these layers to nourish us, and to give us data for mining our own stories and for then being able to resolve issues, maybe edit the story like we did last on A when Teresa told her donut story. The facts didn't change, but the narrative changed. The experience of, you know, the healing changed. So I'm going to kind of, you know, let that peter out because the longer I talk, the more tangents I take and then the more confusing I make everything. <laughs> So I have, in case you can't see, because this is a podcast, Sherry just took a key and locked her lips and threw the key away. And very youthful practice that reminds me of what happens when I was young to see that, like, I'm going to lock my lips and throw away that key. We don't need that key for right now. Yes. <laughs> you know, our body speaks in sensation. And I, I've i always liked the statement, listen to your body whisper so you never have to hear it scream. And maybe that's where, the where these stories live in our body. They live at the places of whispers, the things that are asking for our attention. And sometimes they are a whisper. That sensation is so subtle that... Maybe we don't even notice it because we're busy running through our lives, getting, getting things done. And so if those whispers are the places of stories, and I say that because Sherry started talking about body work and as a body work, uh, body worker and a massage therapist, people will often tell stories when they're on the table. They, uh, I will be working and they will start telling me a story of something that happened in their life. And inevitably the sentence, I don't even know why I'm thinking of that. I don't even know where, why I'm talking about that today. I don't have a scientific answer to say why they're talking about that today. But my felt sense is I'm touching a place that has a connection in some way to the story that they're telling. That being brought out of their brain into their body, they're having a somatic experience. They are feeling touch. Their awareness is being brought to a certain part of their body. And somewhere that is involved, that sensation is involved in the story that their memory starts to feed them back. And so maybe the ability or the, the uh, safe space that's being held for them to verbalize it is a way of processing, reconnecting with it, maybe even letting it go 
so that as the body is letting go of whatever was in that hip of yours that felt tight, that felt energetically stuck, that the tissue felt different, reminds me of the class that I taught, which was issues in the tissues, right? What stories do our tissues hold? People talk about muscle memory and fascial memory, and there's so many different ways that maybe as we go through science and stories, we'll be able to dive a little bit deeper into some of those things. But listen to the sensation, the body. We talked about this also back in season two when we talked about embodiment. The body speaks in sensations. Words that we put together are ways for us to organize the sensation and communicate it to both ourselves and others. So a language is created. So I can tell you the story of the donut and Sherry can tell you the story of her hip and what happened. But in reality, all of those experiences were felt in sensation and the words came second. And so that's the practice. The practice is when there's that little twinge, the little tiny thing that captures your attention, can you pause and give it a moment to speak? You know, there's that book about the body keeps the score and I haven't read it. I have it. I seem to think it is about trauma in the body, if that's correct, that I think, you know, the, the body speaks in many different languages. And I love sensation because that brings in the senses, all the senses that it, if someone has extreme trauma in their body, then the stories, you know, may live deep. They may live on the surface. I mean, this is also out of my, my wheelhouse in terms of ability to be able to manage. That would be, you know, please talk to a professional to be able to to manage the things that come uh, that that are resulting from that trauma, but that the body is holding on to that, uh, and I have had that with my L five S one. Like there's, I had some physical trauma, not not any emotional trauma around that, but it did sort of foster other things. But then there are other stories that are really innocuous that don't necessarily come from the sensation whispering. Like when I was on the table the other day, and she was getting me to relax my right arm. And so from the shoulder to kind of release it completely into her hand, I was telling Teresa that a story came up for me about when I was at camp as a camper, I was 10 years old, maybe 10 years old, because that was my first summer at camp. And I was in this little theater acting program, little class or, or session, whatever it was at camp. And it was my first time ever doing anything like this. And the teacher came over and said, okay, who wants to show me what it's like for your arm to be completely relaxed? So I raised my hand because... I felt like as the youngest of four, the most underachiever, I needed to know everything. I needed to be the one to, I was the actor in the circle. That was my identity. That was, I had to be the one to know. So she came over and I was like, of course I know what it's like to relax. And I put my arm up and then I very controlled, almost like a, a leaf cascading from a tree allowed my arm to float down. And she looked at me, the counselor, her name was Susanna. She was awesome. And she was like, uh, no. And I'm like, what do you mean? No. And then she goes over to this other girl whose name I'm not going to name. And she lifted her arm and her arm just dropped to the ground, dropped by her side. That was pure relaxation. I had intellectualized it. I had come up with an answer and I came up with what I was going to do. And it wasn't the thing. So why do I remember this? Did I feel a little bit embarrassed? Did I feel a little bit of shame? It certainly wasn't a trauma. It wasn't something that has come up over time. Maybe that was the sensation in my shoulder, but that was only for the last couple of years. This happened when I was 10, I'm 54. 
But that story came up because of the motion that she did to, in order for me to relax. There was something in that, in that moment that that story came up. But I don't feel traumatized by it. I don't feel pain from it physically. It was just the memory of that. So there's a different, different way in. There is. And when we talk about the stories the body holds, especially in this culture, because trauma work, at least in body work and yoga, is very much talked about right now. But when we talk about the, the stories the body holds, sometimes the first jump off point is the stories about things that happened that were traumatic or things that embarrassed us or something that happened that felt a little bit uncomfortable. But we also hold the stories of every joy and every happy event that happened on the table when people are telling me a story when I'm working in a certain part of the body. Yes, yeah, sometimes it is a story about something negative that happened or something they viewed as a negative situation in their life. But just as many times they're telling me about something fun or an event or you know, a, a moment of clumsiness that had laughter around it, right? The Maybe the energy or the injury came from a clumsiness, but the way it was processed was kind of a laughing at yourself. Wow, I can't believe I tripped over my own feet laughter, right? So, you know, the, the body holds the stories. Everything. We, yeah, we, we don't, don't get want to choose. We don't get to choose what the body is holding. We get to choose, though, what we, why don't if we choose it, but where our attention is drawn is where, you know, the story then takes on layers of meaning, whether it's trauma or whether it's joy or whether it's anything in between there, all the shades that, you know, that can't necessarily be categorized as joyful or traumatic. You know, sometimes they're just the diurnal experiences that we experience that, you know, don't are not remarkable in either way, in any way. You know, they're just the things that happen. You know, I picked up my dog's poop on the walk. Oh, that came up the other day as I was bending down and I could feel where the repetitive motion of picking up poop has, you know, or whatever it is. But that's, I think, part of the magic is that, you know, it, it, it absorbs everything. A sponge doesn't choose to pick up just the, you know, the wet parts. It's picking up the dirt with it. It's picking up the flower petals with it or whatever it is. It's absorbing everything in its path as you wipe down your counter or you, you know, and our bodies, we are sponges. We are absorbing our lives, hopefully. You know, some shit gets wrung out over time. Yes, with compression and body work. And a lot of it, this takes me right back into the koshas. And it is how we interpret and talk about it to ourselves. So for instance, when I was teach when I first began teaching issues in the tissues, what I noticed in the first few classes was vocabulary. It was what people say about what's going on in their body. So the language was, I'm here because I'm an old lady who's in pain. I'm here because I want to figure out if I can do something with my bad leg. Yes, I'm going to have trouble on, on that side because that's my, that's my bad shoulder. And the language that went around things that weren't functioning ideally showed me all of the koshas. It showed me something that was happening in the physical body, but at the same time, the language showed me how it was interpreted through the emotional body, um, how it felt in the mind. That's my bad leg. I wish it would just go away, which we clearly do not want our leg to go away. Maybe we want the discomfort or the pain or the uh, 
whatever is going on there that's speaking to us in a sensation that we're interpreting as uncomfortable. We want that to dissipate and find resolution for it. So language is really important. And when something is going on in the physical body, which I found out in issues in the tissues and what they were holding, was that there's a language and there's an emotion. There's a mindset that goes around with it. And much of what we did as the third and fourth class was begin to change our language and changing the language changed the circumstance. So that is my leg that's asking for my attention. Hello, me. How can I serve you? What is it that I can do to make you feel at home and at ease today? The stories the body holds and the stories they tell. We will continue to get into that deeper and deeper as we move into next season. So come back. And that, and that season will also include a program called Science and Stories, which will be virtual. So anyone listening can participate. Stay tuned, please, for that. I think it, we're going to bring in some great experts. We're going to have a panel. We're going to have all sorts of interesting deep diving into these, these conversations. So stay tuned. And thanks for, thanks for listening, as always. Until next time. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you are so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. <laughs>